You're listening to The Lip. And if you're listening for the first time, you're in good company. This is, after all, the very first episode. I'm your host, Megan McChesney, and my mission with this podcast is to bring you an unforgettable true story every month. Some of the stories here on The Lip will be longer than others, and they will be everything from gripping, sad, heartwarming, funny... What the stories all have in common, though, is that they've been 100% lived by the person telling it. Just a quick warning before we get underway with this episode. There's the odd swear word, and the story itself contains some pretty graphic violence. It's not suitable for everyone. So if you're squeamish about any of that, or you've got children listening, you might want to give it a miss, or tune in again later when little ears aren't flapping. Also, it was a wild spring day when I did this interview, and you might hear the odd wail of wind on some of the tape. Just consider it atmospheric. Barbara Bishop and Nikki Goodwin, they were fast friends living in South Taranaki. The area is known for its beautiful mountain, its lush farmland and for having the biggest dairy factory in the world. But back in 95, it was in the spotlight for all the wrong reasons. Here's Barbara. I met Nikki through where I worked and for a start I just thought she was a bit crazy loopy. (laughs) But then I got to know her and I realised that she was really... Just the life of the party. Just very caring, um, open. You know, sometimes you meet someone, you don't have to know them for very long, um, but you just feel like they would be friends forever and you'd end up at the old folks' home sneaking wine in and drinking it up. I could just imagine that with us too. It was so much fun just all the time with her. It's just a laugh a minute. We used to um, go for lunch. We'd have a few drinks in the smoker room. But she was very good. She would only ever have a couple of drinks because she knew she had to drive back out to the farm. So she never got drunk or anything. Barbara's talking about Nicky Goodwin, who, at the time they met, was married to Mark Goodwin. He's from a good background. He had money. He had a farm. He was a hard worker. I guess you could say he was cute at the time. He was a catch. They had two young children and lived on a farm at Kaaponga. I just thought he was a busy farmer that was always thinking about the next job that he had to do. I would always be, g'day Mark, how you doing? Most of the time he'd just, meh, walk away. So that's what kind of person he was. Barbara knew Nikki wasn't happy in the relationship. She would tell me just little things about things he said to make her feel really um, inadequate and um, not attractive. Fat, fat slut. Just pretty much fat and stupid and all those other things that some men say in relationships. She had said that she was not happy, um, but she never mentioned leaving him. That was later on. But we went on holiday together to Kafia, me and Nick and Mark and his brother and another couple of mates. And Mark got a bit drunk, um, yelled at me, this is all your fucking fault, and then chased Nikki out the door, and I heard her screaming, ran down there, and she's outside the toilets crying, because he'd come up and punched her, knocked her over and punched her in the back. 
I saw that with my own eyes. Um, but it wasn't long after that that she'd had enough. She decided, nope, that's it, I'm out. Nikki's split from Mark was acrimonious. She moved into a house in Hawara with their two young boys, and the family court decided on custody. On Friday nights, she was to drop the kids off with Mark out on the farm, and on Sunday evenings, Mark was to bring them back to Nikki in town. And Mark was saying horrible things to Nikki when he, she dropped the kids off. Just the usual, fat, slut, ugly, nobody wants you, all of those horrible things. So she decided it wasn't safe. Um, so she started taking a family member, which for a start was her sister, and then her mother would go. And then one night after work, she said to me, well, I've got to go and drop the kids off at the farm on Friday. Do you want to come with me? I said, yeah, we can go out, drop the kids off, and then call into my sister's for a coffee, and then come back into town. And that became our regular Friday night thing. Nikki and Barbara settled into that routine for three months, and on that fateful Friday night in spring, it seemed just like any other, except that by then Mark had a new love interest on the go. When Nikki and Mark split up, he called in a prostitute. I think her prostitute name was Black Velvet, but her real name was Jan York. She called out there a couple of times, and then after that she just kind of moved in. Barbara had only seen Jan once before, and that was the previous Friday when, strangely, Jan had come out of the house as Barbara and Nikki were dropping the kids off. She walked around the car and then disappeared back inside the house. In hindsight, that encounter was ominous. So that Friday night when we arrived on the farm, Nikki got the kids out of the car and took them into the front door, and at the same time, Jan walked around the back of the car and into the side of the shed, and I thought, that was a bit weird. And then I heard Nikki scream. So I looked towards the front door and I saw the kids were being dragged inside and so was Nikki. And then at the same time, Jan York jumped into the driver's seat of the car with a shotgun and pushed the shotgun in, into me and said, get down, get down. So I got down into the, the floor area where your feet go and she had the shotgun pressed to the back of my head. And then I felt the car drive into the shed and Mark dragged Nikki in screaming by her hair. And then um, he said, where's that other piece of shit? And he grabbed, I heard some tape rolling off and they taped my hands behind my back really tight. And then they put Nikki into the driver's seat and they got a bottle of vodka and they made us drink the vodka. They put a tablet under my tongue. I didn't even know what that was. I've got absolutely no idea. And then they just taunted us the whole time, like, you idiots, I'm a member of the Black Power, the boys are gonna come pick you up soon that Nikki was greedy in the divorce settlement, that she was a bad mum, that she was just fat and ugly, just horrible things. At one stage, Mark said, oh, I better go and finish digging those holes. So of course, what races through your head is all of what is going to happen? And just 
the taunting and the teasing and the alcohol and, and oh, I smoke a joint. They pulled out a joint. It's the first time I've ever, ever had marijuana, ever. With their hands tied behind their backs, Barbara and Nikki were at their tormentor's mercy. You couldn't fight them. Marijuana joints were placed between their lips and if they wanted to breathe, they had no choice but to take a drag. Um, I think I remember at one stage Jan said to me, um, you know, if we'd have met in different circumstances, maybe we would have been friends. And what do you do at the time? I just nodded my head. But there's no way. But you do what you've got to do under those circumstances. My feeling was that this was all just make-believe. I was dribbling the vodka out of the side of my mouth. Um, the tab that they put under my tongue, when they turned away, I spat it out. Every time I looked over at Nikki, they would tell me to turn my fucking head away. So I would. So I, I'm not sure how Nikki was faring. But they left the shed at one stage and I said to Nikki, we're in the shit, aren't we? And she said, yep. And I said, will they go through with it? And she said, yep. Even though this was her husband, she must have known that he'd flicked a switch. She must have. Over the course of the evening, Mark left the shed several times. Once, he took the time to drop the two kids off at his parents' house close by. Another time, Nikki and Barbara were left bound and gagged while Mark and Jan drove to the local pub. They needed an alibi for the evening and being seen together having a quiet beer was a solid plan. We were both in the front of the car, she was in the driver's side, I was in the passenger side and we both had our arms taped together behind our backs. So we couldn't move at all. At one stage in the shed, they put pillowcases over our heads and they put tape, I could feel them feeling for my mouth, and they put tape over my mouth on the outside of the pillowcase. And then they left the shed for a while. When they did that to my mouth, I knew that they were trying to suffocate us so that we'd be more pliable for them to do whatever they were going to do. So I would poke my tongue out and rub it along to get the tape out from my mouth so I could breathe. I'm not sure what Nikki did. I don't know if she did the same. I think I think I must have passed out maybe because it, to me it only felt like 10 minutes. But the drive there and back, um, I reckon it would have been half an hour, 40 minutes. Just enough to be seen at the pub and yep. You hear the shed door open and we knew they were back. And then they came in and they took the pillowcases off and then I could see them kind of whispering together. And then they went and got a plastic bag and they put it over Nikki's head, pulled it tight so that she couldn't breathe and I could feel, hear her legs going up and down on the pedals. And that was Mark doing that. And then Jan York went and got a brick and smashed it. <laughs> and smashed it on Nikki's head. And she kind of, she screamed a bit after that. And then she was still kicking her feet on the pedals. 
and then they smashed her again on the head. And after that, she just kind of moaned a little bit. And then they were whispering again outside the car. Nikki just kind of slumped against me. So I kind of knew it wasn't looking good. And then they took her out of the front seat of the car and they put her in the back seat of the car. And then Mark got in the driver's side, backed the car out of the shed, and we were driving down the road. I wasn't really sure what was going to be happening. I thought that either he was, like he'd said before, dug those holes, um, and the other thing I thought of was what they'd said before too about the black power picking us up. I mean, what, what would you think? So I was very, I was very scared, but I was also because I hadn't taken all of those substances. I was quite lucid about what I was doing and I slumped myself against the side of the car hoping that he would just think that I was out but I knew where we were and we were nearly driving past my sisters and I had this thought oh I could open the door and jump out right oh I could do that she decided against it which was undoubtedly a good choice she would most likely have died not that the immediate future was looking much better, if at all. We drove into the township of Opanaki and the street lights were on, some of the shop fronts lights were on, I think it was about midnight. And we drove out to the beach cliff top and I knew where we were because I'd been there before. And Mark Goodwin got out of the car, dragged Nikki out of the back seat. And then I heard them whispering again because Jan York had followed us in the other car. So they took Nikki out of the back and Mark came into the driver's seat again. And he said, oh, well, we can't have that still on your arms. So he ripped the tape off my arms, dragged me over into the front seat and said, there you go, Barb, you can go home now, and shut the door. And I was like, is he really going to leave me there? Oh my God, really? No, the car started moving. I tried the handbrake, I tried pushing the foot on the brakes, I tried everything to stop that car. Nah, wouldn't stop. And then I was flying over the cliff. <sighs> Onto the rocks. Mark and Jan's elaborate plan was to fake an accident for Barbara and Nikki, making it look like they had died after a drink and drugs bender. We will never know the exact reason why they didn't leave Nikki in the car with Barbara, but it could have had something to do with the head bashing they had already given Nikki. They didn't want an autopsy to reveal that her head injuries had not been caused by the crash. Whatever their reasoning, one thing was for sure. Barbara's chances of survival were now minuscule. The cliffs at Opanaki dropped 25 metres, that's 82 feet, into the famously wild west coast, the rocky, riptidal, untamable, dangerous west coast. When I went sailing over the cliff, I think I was in a lot of disbelief, like, 
Is this really happening? I felt, when the car left the cliff, I felt like a little a jerking. And then when the car landed, it landed almost vertical and then rolled onto its roof. Openaka Beach is a rocky beach with huge boulders down the bottom as well. So, yeah, I'm very lucky when I hit it that I didn't hit a huge boulder and it would have caved in everything. It landed in like a, a flattish, rocky place. I felt the jarring as it hit and then I felt my body roll. And then I just like couldn't believe I was alive for a star. And then I was just like, right, how am I going to get out of this? So my arm was trapped under the car door because the window had been open. When the car landed, the door opened a bit and my arm was actually stuck between the door and the car. The full weight of the car was lying on my arm, crushing it. I didn't feel the pain for a start. It wasn't till a little bit after that I felt the pain. But I do remember, because I was a smoker at the time, I found my smoke, so I was so excited. There's <laughs> a smoke, yay, where's my lighter? Oh, damn it, he took it, damn it. As the hours passed and knowing that the tide would soon be coming in, Barbara became increasingly desperate. Lying in that car trapped, I felt a lot of um, anger towards them. And I remember thinking, they're not going to fucking get away with this. I'm going to get out of this and I'm going to get them. Um, but I was also trying to be practical, like, how can I get out of this? And I thought, like, if I cut my wrist off I can pull my arm out so I grabbed some shattered windshield tried to cut that these are the things that go through your head when you're in survival mode oh I'll just chop my wrist off it'll be fine it didn't work her arm remained trapped and the stark reality of her situation began to wash over her like the incoming tide the tide started coming in when it was still dark so I didn't see it coming I could hear the waves coming in and then of course you started getting a bit of water from the waves and I do remember thinking um, oh god well this is it oh well say goodbye to the whole family I said goodbye to everybody um, but the waves started getting higher and higher and I do remember holding my breath and thinking oh god I'll just take a gulp of, I'll just take a gulp in and it'll be over quick the very next minute, and this is serious, the very next minute, a huge wave hammer lifted the whole car up and my arm was free. And I remember thinking, holy crap, I'm sure I felt someone lift me then. Someone saved me. I like to believe it was Nikki. For a start, I was in like, shock. So I think when the car lifted, it lifted me and turned me around to look out the back window. Um, and then I think the window was smashed in the back. So I climbed out. Climbed out the window. After seven hours trapped inside the crushed car, with the tide slowly creeping up, it seemed like a miracle. But there was still one major obstacle 
the pounding waves. The water was up to probably my chest. The waves were very, very strong. I think the sun was just coming up because I saw boulders. So the waves were so strong, I went over to one of those boulders and just hugged it for a minute while I could like get my bearings and think, what am I going to do now? And I remember hearing a noise and I looked over and there was a blooming seal on the next rock over. And he looked at me and I looked at him and all of a sudden he went and took off. So I was holding onto the rock and then I was like, I've got to get out of here, I've got to. So I think I remembered that the walkway was round to my right. So I kind of went from rock to boulder to boulder to try and get round there and a couple of waves were really strong and I had to really grip the rock so I wouldn't get sucked out. So I took my jeans off and my jersey off and I started swimming it. Soon Barbara spotted the walkway and minutes later she was out of the water and climbing the pathway cut into the side of the cliff. It was astonishing she had managed to see what she needed to see to escape. The open window at the back of the car, the boulders, the pathway. Because back in the shed, Mark had taken her glasses away from her, saying, you won't need these anymore. Everything was in soft focus. Fine details of things like people's faces were beyond her capability. And at the top of the walkway, she was suddenly frozen with fear. I heard a a loud-engined car, and that's what his one is. And I thought, oh, he's come back to see if I'm actually gone. So I huddled in the corner up the top, trying to be, make myself as small as possible. There was like, like a farmer's fence post, that was it. Huddled down there, and I saw a man walking towards me, and I I was I had no idea and he walked down the walkway and he disappeared for a bit and then he came back up and he must have seen me and he said oh you're all right and I said no I'm not and he said right come with me his name was Bill Oliver he was a fisherman and he said the only reason I'd walk down there was to untangle my line so if he hadn't I may have sat there huddled for the next hours until somebody else asked me if I was okay. But I, he took me to his farmhouse and he put me in the shower because I was freezing cold and rang the police and rang my mum. Barbara was still living at home and her family had panicked when she hadn't returned the previous night. Fearing they'd had a car accident, Barbara's dad and Nikki's stepdad were out searching for them. But once the news broke that Barbara had been found, it was Nikki's brother-in-law, a policeman, who arrived first. And he said to me, where's Nikki, where's Nikki? All Barbara could tell him was that Nikki hadn't been in the car with her. Months would pass before Nikki was found, and Barbara had many battles to fight before then. When the ambulance turned up at Bill Oliver's house, um, even the grunty sound of that, when Dad and Bernie were there with me, um, I panicked and said, oh my God, it's him coming back, it's him coming back. And they had to reassure me, look, it's the ambulance, it's okay, it's okay, it's the ambulance. 
Unbelievably, she had no broken bones. Her most serious injury was a crushed right arm. Today, she has 80% movement in the arm. The only thing she can't do, she says, is a handstand. Mark Goodwin and Jan York were arrested the day after Barbara was found. The following year, Goodwin and York were both sentenced to life in prison. Goodwin received a minimum non-parole period of 12 and a half years, and York a minimum of 13. Barbara gave evidence in court. Standing up in court and telling the story was quite hard because they were both there. There was no partition. There was a lot of space between us, and they did have guards by them. But it was pretty raw and pretty fresh. Just before sentencing... Jan York told the police whereabouts Nikki's body was, but she couldn't show them the exact area. Um, so they went and got Mark out of prison, and Mark showed them exactly where she was. After assuming Barbara was dead, Goodwin and York had driven Nikki to Tewera Forest on the Forgotten World Highway east of Stratford. They gave her a remote and lonely burial ground amid the trees, not far from the road. A year after she'd been so brutally murdered, Nikki was finally returned to her family. Life would never be the same. There'll always be a trigger. Right now, if I went to a party and there was marijuana around, I'd have to walk, I'd have to leave. Cannot stand the smell of it. Just absolutely hate it. Smells, sounds, the ripping of masking tape. Hate that sound. Absolutely hate it. There will always be triggers, always, for the rest of your life. In New Zealand, we have a programme called Restorative Justice, which emphasises repairing the harm caused by criminal behaviour. It works on the belief that both criminals and the people they've harmed can find benefit in face-to-face meetings. People who have committed crimes and people who have been on the receiving end of crimes can ask for a restorative justice session, and no one is obliged to say yes. Several years after the attack, Barbara asked for a restorative justice session with Mark Goodwin. I wanted the opportunity to see Mark Goodwin again in a controlled environment where I knew that um, if he tried anything, he would be jumped on. I wanted to do it for me, for my power, to get my power back. He refused. And then Jan York's people contacted me. I went down and saw her in Christchurch prison, me and Dad. Walking into the prison was quite intimidating because they had guards and they had um, same security measures as an airport, like you have to walk through metal detectors and they check your bag and all of that. I had no idea what to expect, what it was going to be like in there, but I also knew that I didn't want to do it anywhere else. Like if that had said, hey, we can bring her into town and we can set up a room, I didn't want that. I wanted her behind bars and to stay behind bars and watch me leave. It was good because um, they took me into the room first, the restorative justice people, and I could set the room up how I wanted. So I was at the head of the table and Dad was next to me and my support person was next to me. Jan York was on the side Her guard was at the head, so I made that room the way I wanted it. I made it that way because I didn't want her at the head of the table, directly opposite me. I didn't want that. I wanted the head of the table. 
in that session, I asked a lot of questions like, um, did you really have black power connections? There was no black power involved. But Dad was really angry, and he was just asking her question after question after question. And she started to raise her voice, and I'm thinking, really? Immediately after the attack, Barbara says the main questions running through her mind were why and how. How can you even think about doing that to somebody? But over the years, her thoughts had solidified to one other question. Whose idea was it? During the half-hour session, York told Barbara it was all Goodwin's idea. Barbara says she knew she would. She told York, look, there were two of you there. Don't make excuses for yourself. Stand up and take responsibility for what you did. When I walked out of there, I did feel like a weight was lifted off my shoulders. Um, I felt almost like I was safe again. I don't really care what she got out of it, to be honest, but I feel better now, having faced her again. And then, a few years later, came a bolt from the blue. Mark Goodwin changed his mind, and I, me personally, I think it was only so it would look good for him. He didn't really want to see me, but that's fine. It's not about him, it's about me. I'd already stared one killer in the eye and now I was going to stare another killer in the eye. Um, But to me, he just looked old, frail, weak, which made me feel even better because I felt great. Um, And again, it was taking the power back. Like, I had no control, no power that night. Um, But sitting in there with a guard on either side of him and I was free to come and go as I please. I had lots of questions for him as well. My main question was, whose idea was it? Mark said it was Jan's idea. So I was never going to get a straight answer. I just wish one of them had the guts to put their hand up. But that session gave Barbara something money could never buy. If I didn't do the restorative justice, I wouldn't see them for who they are today. In my mind, the young, strong people... Now that I've seen them now, they're weak, insecure, inconsequential bugs. For years now, Barbara has turned the worst experience of her life into something positive. She lends her services to victim support and the police in the wake of other traumatic events. Even though, like, a murder case, a rape case, a car accident, a horrific, even a horrific work accident, some of the feelings in all of those are the same. Survivor's guilt is a big one that a lot of people have, is survivor's guilt, which I had for a while too, and I kept saying, why me, why me? And then Nikki's mum kept saying, well, why not you? And there's no denying she is a survivor. I noticed when I was looking for Barbara on Facebook, she went by a name that made me smile a lot. (laughs) I have a um, name on Facebook and it's the Barbonator, just because, uh, yeah, fuck with me and I'll terminate you. (laughs) And you've got to have a good sense of humour. This experience has changed me in a few ways. I used to be quite shy around new situations. I'd never go anywhere on my own. Since this has happened, I don't know whether you'd call it 
I just don't give a shit attitude. I, I don't mind now going to a meeting and I've never met anybody before and I'll walk in and say hi. Like I've had my near-death experience, I really don't care. I think I live a great life now. Um, I love my job at work. I still work in the same place. Uh, 26 years I've been there. Love my job, love my family, love my friends. I was really angry that they thought that my life was worth nothing. I don't feel sad or depressed or anything like that. It's all anger against them. I used to keep saying, I don't want to forgive. Why should I forgive them for what they've done? What they've done is unforgivable. And then like, yeah, a couple of people did say, oh yeah, but you know, if you forgive, it won't eat you up inside. And I remember thinking, well, it's not. I'm still living my life. I'm still enjoying my life. As long as it doesn't enfold in on you, and as long as it doesn't cut you up, it's fine. I've got no problem with it. I feel anger and hatred towards them, and I always will. Can't forgive that. You've been listening to The Lip, and I'm your host, Megan McChesney. A quick update on Barbara's story. Mark Goodwin walked free from jail early in 2012. All up, he served 17 years. And Jan York was released on parole in November last year. She spent 21 years behind bars. If you'd like to see photographs to go with Barbara's story, you'll find some on our website, thelippodcast.kiwi. You can also download us on iTunes and Stitcher. And right here, I'd like to ask you a big favour. If you enjoyed this episode, please do go to iTunes and leave a short review. It's just a few moments of your time, and it will really, really help to get the lip established. Thanks so much for listening. See you next month.